You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. If you had to guess, in the past, the most expensive comic book that ever sold, what value do you think it carried? Oh, oh man. Uh, let's say... It was referred to as the holy grail of comic books, if that's a clue for Ooh, you. Jeez. <laughs> it's got to be expensive. 20 million. <laughs> yeah, it was shot a little bit. <laughs> It's 3.2 million. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Still, it's yeah, a lot of money. It's, it's up there. For a piece of paper, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was the Action Comics number one. And it was a company called Certified Guarantee Company, which is spelled very differently as G-U-A-R-A-N-T-Y, mm. Guarantee Company. <laughs> and it originally sold for 10 cents in the day. And four copies were sold for over a million each. And in 2014... A number nine CGC copy sold for $3.2 million at an auction. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> $20 million. You crazy? <laughs> a lot of money. How have you guys been this last week? Oh, man. We're back where we started. It feels like we've done like a 180. It's deja vu. Yeah. We've been so diligent in staying home and... Uh, keeping our distance and just doing our bits all through March, April, and June. And then everything opened back up and we're in California. Our numbers are now worse than what it was at the height of the lockdown. So we kind of like on Monday, our governor locked down non-essential businesses, gyms, card rooms, which I still don't really know what it is, wineries, malls, gyms gymnastics for kids just about everything yeah i don't know man it's it's tough times right it's, it's really difficult times to wrap our head around especially as parents you know because yeah little kids have very valid questions emerson our five-year-old asked me that when is the naughty virus gonna leave us when can we play with our friends again <laughs> yes it's very naughty yeah this virus for sure we need a superhero we need somebody to come and save us, man. We do. We do. <laughs> you guys went camping, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we kind of took the kids away and off to a lake and wow. just tried to get a change of scenery. Like you say, being stuck at home so much, it was amazing to let the kids run around a little bit and do a little bit of fishing and just have some fun around the campfire. Yeah, we rented an RV, gosh, three weeks ago because we could like contain ourselves with an RV and just drove to a like an RV place in the mountains. It was really good. Yeah. I think we'll do that again pretty soon with them. Oh, that's great. Just some variety, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so today, what are we talking about today? Today is going to be a fun episode. We are talking about comics. Yes. And superheroes. Yes. And a father of a five-year-old boy and all about superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny, Emerson has never seen any superhero comic or movie or anything he has these very basic you know those kids books that's like printed on like basically a, a piece of wood that's really hard oh yeah like the golden books yeah exactly we've got a series like that of action heroes like very dumbed down for little people and he just adores them 
he plays Superman, and I think his favorite is Cyborg because it's half computer. That's what he says. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be talking about Marvel today, and it's a really cool story. Marvel, the company, was originally created in 1939 by Marvin Goodman, and it was originally called Timeless Comics. And in 1961, the company rebranded as Marvel, as we know today, mm. and launched this first title that Marvel eventually became known for, including the Fantastic Four and other titles by the legendary names behind Marvel, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Awesome. Yeah. So from the 1960s through the 1980s, Marvel Comics really takes off. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby do some amazing writing, some amazing character development. They really just lead this, this fantastic creative push within Marvel. And their art and their storytelling kind of sets a new tone within the comic book genre and industry, especially because Stan Lee really wanted to humanize the characters and give them human-like flaws and make them more relatable, which worked really, really well. And they had a lot of very connected storytelling. So the franchise staples like Fantastic Four, The Amazing Spider-Man, they really start selling well. Marvel was among the most respected comic book franchises, and they built on an already strong foundation. This is a quick clip of an intro to Captain America from the 1960s. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel is due, then the red and the white and the blue will come through when Captain America throws his mighty shield. Oh, I just love those old jingles. <laughs> Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Really nice, yeah. Yeah, so then through the late 80s and into the early 90s, Marvel's success really starts to just hit a peak. They've kind of maxed out their existing base. And they really start to kind of, even though they've started to attract the attention of people in the mainstream through like Saturday morning cartoons, they still had this core of kind of their core comic book geek kind of base. And it was during this time that millionaire Ron Perlman, who had huge success previously building Revlon, bought Marvel Entertainment Group for $82 million. He took Marvel public, and he didn't really stop there. He actually bought a toy company called Toy Biz and some trading card and sticker companies. His acquisitions in total cost Marvel over $700 million. Wow. They were really trying to ride on the strength of some of their top characters that they've created, like Spider-Man. And let's actually listen to a quick clip of the intro to the 1981 Spider-Man cartoon. Spider-Man! Nice. Yeah, so in 1993, Marvel shares were worth $35, just over $35 each. 
And comic book sales had become a really big business. Collectors had fallen in love with them as kids and then grew up into adults with money to spend. Yep. And collectible comics from the golden age were selling for really big money. Yeah. But the market wasn't growing. So loyal buyers were just buying more issues and they didn't increase the user set, so to speak. Comic book companies had to figure out a way to keep them buying more. And they started creating exclusives or gimmicks to get collectors not to just buy one issue, but to buy multiple issues. And they did this through a few different things. Yeah. So they'd release special promotional covers with like super extravagant overlays or multiple different covers of the same issue. Or they might release issues in sleeves with collectible cards inside, mm. collector's edition reruns. And so the collectors, of course, wanted to buy all of them to own the entire collection. And they had a lot of these kind of like throwback issues. And then, of course, you have the originals now become more valuable because you have all of these other types of kind of spinoffs of the assets so they really wanted to then just get access to all of these different materials inside the collection. And I'm sure the collection was worth more if you owned like all the covers from like that the issue. Like the full set, yeah, exactly. mint condition. <laughs> so they were very sure that their investment will grow in value and that they will be able to sell them for profit in the future, the collectors. Writer Neil Gaiman gave a speech to 3,000 comic industry leaders at the 1993 Diamond Comic Book Distribution 10th Annual Retailer Seminar. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and he basically prophesied doom to come. And Gaiman said that the success of comics couldn't last and that the practices of continuing driving prices up were not only going to hurt the quality of the comic writing and production, but they will eventually come back to bite the industry as a whole. And he called this, or this is referred to as the industry as the tulip speech, referring back to the tulip mania during the Dutch golden age in the 1600s. Yeah, so back in this global tulip craze, Holland, like their entire economy became based on tulips. Yeah. <laughs> they stockpiled all these tulips thinking the craze would last forever. And then, of course, you know, people kind of move on from being obsessed with tulips. The whole thing crashes and the entire Dutch economy collapses. It's kind of like this crazy weird thing in history. You know, it makes me think, I'm sure that we could, during that time, we could find some marketing angle to tell that story because I've read several books on the tulip mania. And it's so interesting the way that the psychology behind collecting these bulbs and the value that they inflated the price. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, so you have this strange situation, and here's a quote from Gaiman. He says, quote, You can sell lots of comics to the same person, especially if you tell them that you are investing money for high guaranteed returns. But you're selling bubbles and tulips, and one day the bubble will burst and the tulips will rot in the warehouse. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened <laughs> in Holland. So this was around the 1990s. So let's play a clip of the Fantastic Four intro of 1991. No! 
great stuff. That's fun. It's funny, even in the 90s, it's still very old school, like the musical style and everything. It's very retro and like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so the year wasn't even out before Gaiman's prophecy started to come true. Higher prices and more and more issues and collectible items just couldn't last forever. There's only so many items you can push on collectors before they start to just say, I can't buy it all, right? Like everybody has limited incomes. So collectors start to get fatigued, realizing that not every release is going to be worth investing in and some stuff is more valuable than others. The flood of collectibles start to really devalue the entire comic book market. So Perlman and those like him who had gone so heavily into maximizing the revenues from devoted collectors had actually kind of choked off their own golden goose by Mm. oversaturating their own market. It's a bit what Starbucks did when they opened up all their stores, right? Right. The store on every corner model. And then they figured out, well, actually, maybe every corner isn't the best way to do it. And they got more specific with their locations. So revenues from comics and trading cards start to fall, of course, and the bubble started to burst. So by the end of 1993, the entire industry as a whole had pretty much crashed with sales down 70%. Ouch. Yeah, in 1996, shares of Marvel were worth just over $2 off the peak of 35 bucks. That's less than 10%. Yeah. On January 4th, 1996, Marvel laid off 275 employees. The once mighty Marvel Entertainment Group was in deep debt. Perlman had leveraged everything in the public offering, and now the losses were starting to pile up. Mm. So this started a massive legal battle. Desperate for ways to pull Marvel out of the dumps of debt, Perlman launched Marvel Studios. Aha. So he basically just wanted to get the signature characters on screen. Yeah, and the thing is, is... We all know that the MCU is really what exploded Marvel in a good way. And so this initial part of the strategy with getting these characters on screen, it was the right strategy, but they were doing it kind of without any overarching plan. There was no connectivity to it. It was just kind of more short-sighted thinking of, well, maybe let's just try this and see if it works. So they would do these individual one-off movies that were licensed with other companies. They basically rented the characters out to other companies for pennies on the dollar. And the movies just weren't really very well produced. They didn't put a lot of creative oversight and real effort into it. So this kind of like winning strategy looked a lot like a losing strategy. And it's really interesting how that plays out later with how difficult it is for them to kind of try that same thing again but in a different and smarter way to make it work. Yeah, some of the stuff that I read, the analogy that was given is they sold the company for spare parts. They would rent out their characters to Sony to go and produce a movie. Yeah. And it was done in complete isolation, and there was no cross-story pollination throughout the franchise. And that's kind of a thing that started getting them. So in order for him to do that well... There were a lot of licensing deals in the way because they've rented out their company, you know, they sold the company for spare parts. So he planned to grow the company by further acquisitions, mostly by buying the rest of the Toy Biz company. 
so that he could buy back the licensing for these key characters to do exactly what we just talked about. <laughs> yeah, and of course, the board, Marvel's shareholders, they weren't so sure about this whole thing. They'd been producing like Saturday morning style cartoons for a long time. So they had some experience with TV production and they had also had some negative experiences with cinema. Mm. So they had already made films that were not hits like the Howard the Duck fiasco, which <laughs> was a total disaster. Never heard of that. <laughs> exactly. It grossed 38 million at the box office. And even when they had successful films, or moderately successful films like Blade, which made $70 million at the box office, the reward for Marvel was so minuscule, according to a Slate article, it was only $25,000 that they got from a $70 million feature film. Wow. So Avi Arad, who was the CEO of Toy Biz and on the board of Marvel at this point, he really believed that in order to expand the customer base they had to go beyond the kind of comic book geeks and the Saturday morning cartoons and really bring it to the masses more effectively through Hollywood and through a more connected strategy versus this kind of one-off random spattering and selling the company for spare parts. Mm -hmm. And so he said it was literally a daily fight. So Avi recounts in a 2012 Slate article Quote, trying to open people's eyes to what was right in front of them. So that was like his daily fight, his battle. So they worried, of course, that the damage to the stock price from further leveraging out the assets in order to get financing to do all of this would just be too much and would just tank the stock price because they were already in a ton of debt. So they couldn't get the deal approved. And at that point, that's when Perlman tries to kind of go around the rest of the leadership and <laughs> and the board. So he decides, you know what? I'm going to file for bankruptcy. And then that way I can reorganize the company without the board's consent. And then I can basically just kind of do what I want <laughs> through this kind of like just total backdoor approach. Interesting strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he kind of like purposefully bankrupts the company. But of course, this whole thing doesn't go down easily. You've got investor Carl Icahn, who fights him in public and in the press. Icahn said Perlman was like a plumber you loan money to, to get him started in his business. And then he comes in, wrecks your house, and tells you he wants to buy the house for nothing. <laughs> and that's a quote from a Den of Geek article. It's really good. In 1998, the battles were resolved, but neither Perlman or ICANN was the victor. A court ruled that Toybiz and Marvel Entertainment Group could finally be merged, but the two long-standing board members, Isaac Polmutter and Avi Arad, staged a coup. They kicked out Perlman and ICANN, along with the CEO, Scott Sasser. So this is like a- Hostile takeover, right? Serious hostile takeover. <laughs> And they brought back, this is really interesting, Joseph Calamari, Marvel CEO during the 1980s as mm. the president while they were trying to stabilize the ship. And then, this is the key inflection point in my eyes, they hired turnaround expert Peter Caneo. He's a veteran of successful turnaround companies like Revlon, Black & Decker, 
and he was CEO, CFO, and they took on what Perlman wanted to do all along to get into the movies. Mm, yes. Very roundabout way to get here, though. Yes, yeah, it took a lot of work. Bankruptcy, coop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a ton of work to kind of consolidate the strategic thinking into kind of a single line of thinking. But we do see that often in our show, right? That sometimes you need to break it down completely in order to rebuild it versus just changing yes. the ship's course a little bit. Right. But it's a very risky move because sometimes I think people follow that strategy and they create more headache and work for themselves versus just having to change the ship's direction. And I think this is where somebody like Kaneu is the perfect hire because he's done comebacks and rebuilds for big companies multiple times. And he just has the right experience to make the calls. Yeah. And if there's anything that we've learned through this experience is everything. You need the right type of experience for the specific kind of turnaround situation that you have in front of you. Yep. And not every leader is equipped for those particular type of, of situations. So Cuneo imposes these kind of strict financial discipline measures. People joke about him literally like counting paper clips, which he said is only a small exaggeration. We wanted people thinking about spending every day. So he tightens the strings in every area, tied employee incentives to cash flow instead of profitability, mm -hmm. and cut costs across the company, including cutting warehousing and merchandising costs by 71%. So it seems like he's saying, let's focus less on all these collectible items and all of that kind of stuff, you know, which also is kind of a smart strategy, like what Disney does with moving things into the vault. Right. It creates a lot of demand and exclusivity when you can't have access to something that you want for a while then you can bring it back later and there's a really high demand and a premium that you can put on it. It's like the Beers Mining that owns half of the world's diamonds and it's in their vault and they just release <laughs> it bit by bit by bit. <laughs> yeah, you can saturate the completely market. control the flow and the pace, right? Yeah, so he implemented a lot of cost-saving practices, but he also believed that cutting corners as it relates to talent is actually what led to Marvel's troubles in the 90s and refused to repeat that mistake, which I think was really smart. So he cut where he knew he could cut, but he didn't go cheap where he felt that he had to. Here's a quote from him that's from teampay.co and it reads, in the creative business in entertainment, the real power comes from creative people, he said. In comic books, it's the writers, editors, and illustrators. If you abuse them because you're cost-cutting, and they feel that they are not appreciated, this is what happened to Marvel. They will leave. And that's so true, right? That's your core business. So he didn't cut there. He actually leaned into that, which is super smart. And it also just shows you that you can't just have a strategy of, hey, we're going to cut across the board. And we see so many companies do that. I think of the episode we did on Domino's, they just like cut across the board. Right. Indiscriminately. Yeah. All the way from dough to pizza sauce, to people, to location, to boxes. <laughs> yes. You know, and I think it's not a blanket strategy you can roll out. Here's a quote of him. My career has been in consumer products, media, and entertainment. So I can't speak for businesses that are highly technical in nature or highly dependent on, on technology. But in the businesses I've been in, it's almost always very poor leadership. 
leadership that lacks courage. Usually the problem is that the leadership for whatever reason is just not unwilling to make the changes, the hard decisions, the hard changes that need to be made as a business and an industry and as competition evolves. You have to react and for various reasons they're just not capable of doing that. Either they don't understand the change or perhaps it's frankly emotionally very difficult to make a lot of people unhappy but making radical change in a business is all about unfortunately making other human beings unhappy. And that is so true, right? Not having the courage or the experience to your point from earlier to make the right decisions. And we'll actually throw that video. It was from Chong Kong Graduate School of Business. We'll throw that video in the show notes. And there's actually a lot of other really good nuggets in there that you can go and listen to. It's really good stuff. Yeah. I mean, and it is true. It can be very difficult. I mean, you know, I think we've both experienced this at various points in our career of how difficult it can be emotionally. Yeah. The emotional capital that's required to really make the changes that are necessary within an organization is all consuming. It's daunting sometimes. And it also is really, truly very difficult to have a sufficient level of humility and inward inflection to realize the depth of change that's often needed at not only an organizational level, but at a personal level. And I think that's where leaders really struggle is every major C-suite executive, for the most part, says and gives lip service to oh, yes, we want to change. We want to innovate. We want to be the best. We want to do whatever it is that they have on their strategic imperatives sheet. But at the end of the day, it's that personal change of being able to make the personal changes that are going to drive success. That's, in my opinion, the hardest part of it all. Yeah, because it's your emotional sweat equity that's in your decision-making that you then need to go and admit that it's not working and undo it's really hard. Yeah. So Arad, again, one of these board members who, who played a part in that coup to remove Perlman and ICANN, he had been the CEO of Toy Biz when Perlman initially bought 46% of the company in the early 90s. And at first, when he came in, he ran the Marvel toy business, but he quickly took on more, including replacing Marvel legend Stan Lee as the head of Marvel Films. And later on, in 2005, there was a long drawn-out royalties lawsuit with Stan Lee. They actually paid him out $10 million and negotiated all his royalties, which is like a drop in the bucket, right? $10 million. <laughs> Now, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of fans didn't really like that because Stan Lee, as one of the primary creators of most of these characters is just absolutely idolized within the comic book community, especially for Marvel fans. So Arad quickly starts taking on more and sets out on getting an X-Men movie made. Mm. And so by 1993, he brokers a deal with 20th Century Fox to get this first X-Men movie made. X-Men goes on to be very successful, but Marvel's biggest characters still weren't in theaters. They still just weren't really making any progress in the mid-90s. So Marvel struggles with all of these licensing problems that prohibit them from producing big-budget films for characters like Spider-Man, which even just as recently as 
a year or two ago was still a problem with Spider-Man and the licensing deal with Sony. Well, it's because they rented out their characters and then they decided, hang on, we want it back. But they had legally binding contracts with all these, the Sonys of the world. (laughs) So it wasn't as easy as just to pull it back. Yes. So it's difficult to unwind, but with the success of X-Men, Arad starts to really convince the rest of the board that getting into big blockbuster movies was a good idea and that they could do it successfully. But even as they start to have some success, as things kind of progress through the late 90s, X-Men series starts doing really well. And then in 2002, the first Spider-Man comes out, and that one's very successful. The two Spider-Man movies in the early 2000s, between those two movies, they made $3 billion. And from... That $3 billion. They paid Stan Lee $10 million. Well, just from that $3 billion, Marvel sure. only saw $62 million because of these horrible outsourcing deals, paying the studios and paying for the licensing agreements. Yeah, so they basically had to pay Sony for the right to make a movie about their own character, and Sony didn't do anything. They just got paid <laughs> right. loyalties, and it's just a horrible, horrible setup if you think about it yep so in 2003 paul mutter was approached by talent agent david measle with an idea for marvel to produce films for themselves and to get all the profits he believed strongly in the idea of unlocking hidden potential the key to his idea was that they owned and produced all the film themselves then they could cross-pollinate the stories from my point earlier very similar to what they're doing within the comic books, right? And now in hindsight, yeah. you look at this and you think, why didn't they do that from the beginning? But this is a major change for them. The board, yet again, was hesitant. Maybe they should put a coup for the board and swap them out. <laughs> but this was a huge step. And the funding simply wasn't there. They couldn't afford to do this. So in 2005, Marvel took a huge step. They approached Merrill Lynch for funding. And as collateral to the loan, they offered up their entire core business. This is like a gamble, right? Mm -hmm. The deal included 10 Marvel products, Captain America, The Avengers, Nick Fury, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Cloak and Dagger, Doctor Strange, Hawkeye, Power Pack, and Shang-Chi. So basically it would succeed wildly or Marvel Studios would completely die. And if they failed, those characters would belong to the bank. (laughs) (laughs) What is Merrill Lynch going to do with (laughs) Avengers? Right. I mean, it's some very good collateral that they could turn around and sell to someone else in Hollywood, but uh, just the thought of a bank owning it is is just sad and crazy. They would sell it for 10 cents to the dollar to... (laughs) The highest bidder, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. And well, the funny thing about this is it was actually kind of a little bit of a sneaky trick because although the Avengers were on that list and the Avengers is like, you know, so many of their top characters, Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, etc. In fact, the rights to Iron Man, Black Widow, Thor and the Hulk were already tied up with other studios. Mm. So the Avengers is like all of those characters together, right? In a package. So 
they were kind of getting the rights to having all of those characters be together in something. But not individually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit of like sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors to kind of overvaluate what they were giving to them to really kind of secure this huge risky loan that they were trying to get and eventually did get. So Merrill Lynch gave Marvel a deal. $525 million over 17 years. They could fund up to 10 movies and any individual movie could have a budget up to $180 million. So Marvel uses that money to start to reacquire the rights to characters they'd sold off when the business was sagging. So they bought back the rights to Iron Man, Black Widow, Thor, and Hulk. The Avengers are going to reunite. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yes. So they start production on the first Iron Man movie, and we all know the rest is history. That movie was extremely popular and really just kicked everything off. So they appointed Kevin Feige, who had produced X-Men, Spider-Man, Daredevil, and Hulk, president of Marvel Studios. And that first Iron Man movie made $585 million. And that was just the beginning. Yeah, and essentially they never ever looked back from this point. They just caught that wave and they're still riding it. The Avengers made billions. It's the third highest grossing movie of all time. Iron Man 3 made more than a billion dollars. And their off-brand franchise, for instance, like Guardians of the Galaxy, was also huge. The first film made $750 million. Black Panther made more than a billion bucks at the box office. It's crazy. And to me, like one of the things that's most crazy about it is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, it's 23 separate but completely integrated movies. Yeah, that's right. You can watch them individually or consecutively and they tell one big story or individual stories. This is so smart. Yes. And the fact that of all 23 movies, not a single flop. Yeah. I mean, think about how difficult it is to have like three movies, right? A sequel and then a third and not have a single flop within a series of three movies is extremely difficult. Well, it's because of their content, right? They've got such good stories. And this ultimately led to Disney, as we know, that bought them in 2014 for $4.3 billion. So this is crazy. So if you think of Marvel, how are they differentiated to DC Comics? Like, what would you think is the difference between them? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think really it's kind of from being different and embracing that difference. They really just decided that when Warner Brothers and DC, they're just focusing really all their effort into their top properties, Superman, Batman, those two, that was like carrying the whole thing. Marvel was going in on all these lesser known characters and seeding them through some of the more known characters. And Marvel is going to take characters like Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America, who are nowhere near as popular as, say, for example, Spider-Man, or even as popular as they are now. And they make those characters very relatable, take an entirely different, a more humanized approach, and audiences 
really respond. And so they learned that even the smaller characters were popular if done right. I mean, just take, for example, Guardians of the Galaxy. You really had to be a diehard comic book fan to know some of those characters. But because of the integration and the seeding of the story and the dedication to the craft of really focusing on the storytelling, the production value, the quality of what they were doing and not allowing anything to be kind of okay, right? they were able to have massive success with the Guardians franchise. Yeah, and then meanwhile, DC dragged its feet on developing a Wonder Woman movie because they weren't sure that movie-going audiences were ready for a female superhero. Can't believe that. Yeah. And it really hurt them in the end. Yeah, exactly. And They kind of made movies... Number one, there's only so many Batman movies you can make. And I think Marvel kind of ran into the same issue as well. There's only so many Spider-Man movies that you can make. And so they had to really like think about, okay, yes, we have these blockbuster franchises, but how do we expand beyond those? And they really had to use this integrated storytelling as the mechanism to drive that. Yeah, so reflecting all this, what have we learned here? I think that great companies don't only market products, yeah. they build ecosystems. Mm. And this is something that you and I have seen over the years in running our own marketing agency, yes. that it's far more of just selling a specific solution to a client versus selling a integrated touch point ecosystem where you provide value to the client. And I think a lot of companies still do that today. They sell individual products and they don't think of the way that our user or consumers can consume the entire ecosystem. And I think people are getting used to that. Yeah. So if they interact with their once-off company selling them once-off products, they shy away from it because they're looking for value from the ecosystem of what a company can offer them. Right. And I think that's kind of born a little bit out of like personas in a sense. Like in marketing, we kind of tend to have this idea of personas as being fixed. This customer fits into this persona. But the reality is, is that over time, customers grow, they change, they have more interactions with the brand. And so things evolve and you have to be there throughout the entire lifespan and evolve with the customer and allow for an ecosystem that meets them as they evolve and as they consume more content and as they get deeper and deeper into your brand. Yeah, and the story of Marvel is really a story of a brand not understanding the big picture. What happens when executives don't understand the sum of their own company's parts? And this is what they did, right? Examples of bad decision-making, the previous leadership, parcel of, like what we just said, their own important assets. And just two examples is that the 20th Century Fox leased X-Men in 1994, and like we said earlier, Spider-Man was leased to Sony. So the Marvel comeback started with the realization that they had their own intellectual property that they can actually capitalize on. Yeah, absolutely. And it just continues with the decision to unite its strengths instead of parceling them out. So the Marvel universe wasn't this disconnected group of characters. It was a network of ideas, something with the potential to be huge and aggregate instead of just piddling along with individual one-off stories and licensing pieces out to others and having kind of a bunch of different people involved in the process so that you couldn't really coordinate anything. 
And that decision was kind of true of their internal talent as well, looking inward for ideas and innovations instead of just constantly going outside. You know, the script for Guardians of the Galaxy came from a Marvel program that actually assigned young writers to find viable story ideas within their back catalog of issues. So smart. They're mining their own assets. And so at the end of the day, I think every company that is successful is successful because of people. This is especially true in creative industries like film and advertising. Finding and retaining top talent needs to be one of the primary goals of any company, whether it's internal creatives, agency creatives, studio creatives, whatever the case might be. When you find the right ones, you really want to develop deep and meaningful relationships with them because that's where you're going to get all of your your juice, so to speak. (laughs) And that's something you and I have talked about many, many, many times, right? So within our company, at five o'clock or six o'clock when people stop working, we can't put their brain in the vault and (laughs) protect it. We need to make sure that the next morning they want to come back to work. Right. And that's so important from a service industry perspective that it's not only finding the right people, but it's also creating an environment for them that they can embrace and that they want to add value into. Yeah. And that's that's really hard for a lot of organizations to do. Yeah. And, and especially within marketing and advertising, because it's not only the agency that needs to cultivate that kind of environment with creatives, but it's also the client. The clients really need to build that relationship and make it a a true partnership for it to be successful and to really flourish into its full potential. And then I think storytelling is so much more important than just having flashy products. It really just drives your ability to do everything else. It's what allows you to have collectibles people care about, toys people care about. And seeing is believing the power of the MCU in blockbuster movie format really brought the characters off of just those illustrated pages and made them very, I think, powerfully real to fans everywhere and broadened the appeal. But I think we also see that just having popular characters doesn't equal good movies either. Right? Like the power of Marvel is its exceptional storytelling and attention to detail. I mean, how many bad Spider Man movies were made? A ton. Yeah. How many bad Superman movies are made? A ton, right? Like, (laughs) there's been a lot of bad Batman movies that were made that were just not good, not compelling, not interesting, and kind of flopped. So, having that exceptional storytelling and attention to detail, along with meticulous integration across this broader ecosystem of 23 movies, really just was the difference. Yeah, and then finally, they moved forward as a united entity. This is so, so, so important. Every new property from Guardians to Agents to S.H.I.E.L.D. on TV was linked, and they were all better if you understood the broader context. So to your point from earlier, they were individual stories, but they all made sense. It's like if you take a step back and look at them all, they're one big story. And I think that is super powerful. Amazing. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. 
This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.